Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, I want to start my sermon today with a question. Have you ever felt left out before? It's never a good feeling when you're left out, but my assumption is that because you're human, you felt this way before. Uh, Maybe you felt this way when you were in elementary school during recess, and the kids on the playground were playing a game. But when you tried to play the game with them, they said, no, we don't want you to play. Or maybe you felt this way when you were in middle school during gym class and the captains were picking kids to play on a team. Do you remember those days? But nobody picked you to play on their team. Or maybe you were the very last one who was picked. Or maybe you felt left out when you were in high school or college or sometime after that and there was this big party coming up and virtually everybody that you knew was invited to this party. But then you realized you never got the invitation. Think about those moments in your life when you have felt excluded and left out. What was going on inside of you? Uh, I remember when I was in middle school, uh, there was this group of kids that I really wanted to be friends with, and I tried really hard to be their friend. I dressed a certain way. I changed my personality uh, to try to fit in with this group. But then I realized that no matter how hard I tried, I wasn't going to be their friend. None of us like to feel left out, do we? Everybody wants to feel involved and included. Let me ask us another question. Is there hope for those who are excluded? Is there hope for those who are left out? Uh, Somebody once asked me this really good question. Uh, They asked me what my favorite characteristic of Jesus is. What is my favorite characteristic of Jesus? And I'm sure we would all have different responses to that question, uh, depending on how we've come to experience Jesus in our lives. Uh, But this was my answer to that question. My favorite characteristic of Jesus, hands down, is his radical love for everybody, but especially the excluded. And so with that, uh, today at Asbury, as we find ourselves now in the season of Lent, uh, the season that leads us into Easter, uh, we are starting a brand new sermon series for Lent that I'm really excited about. We have the graphic up here on the screen. Uh, We're calling this series, Including the Excluded, Including the Excluded. And what we're going to be doing in the sermon series is we're going to be focusing on Jesus' ministry in the third gospel, and that would be the gospel of Luke. Now, as a reminder, there are four gospels that we have in Scripture, uh, the beginning part of the New Testament. What are the four gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell us the story of Jesus. They narrate the story of Jesus, communicate the story of Jesus, uh, Jesus' life, his teachings, uh, his ministry, his death and resurrection. And there's no question that all four gospels in their own way draw attention to Jesus' ministry with outsiders, excluded persons, but Luke's gospel especially does this. In fact, some scholars of the Bible have affectionately referred to Luke as the gospel of nobodies. Don't you love that? The gospel of nobodies. Because Luke, more than any other gospel writer, more than Matthew, more than Mark, more than John, Luke really focuses on Jesus' ministry with excluded persons, with nobodies. 
And I was thinking about this this week. I thought to myself, well, why does Luke does this so much? Why does Luke uh, tend to focus so much on Jesus' ministry with outsiders, uh, nobodies? And the best answer I could come up with was this. Luke was considered to be a nobody himself. He was a Gentile. In fact, he's the only Gentile writer that we know of in the entire Bible. Gentile basically means he was a non-Jewish person. And for the longest time, Gentiles were thought to be outside the promises of God. And yet Luke knew that in Jesus Christ, God's promises were big. They were deep. They were wide. They included everybody, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles too. And so when crafting his gospel and choosing to include certain stories, Luke made sure to let us as the readers know that there is hope for the marginalized. There is hope for the outcast. There is hope for the excluded. There is hope for nobodies. And that hope is none other than Jesus Christ. And what I want us to notice in this message, as we begin this new sermon series, is that hope didn't start when Jesus began his public ministry as an adult at the age of 30. Uh, instead, that hope really started when Jesus was born. That Jesus' birth, and this is the thesis for the sermon today, Jesus' birth demonstrates God's concern for the excluded. And so, with all that being said, all that groundwork being laid, uh, we're going to begin this morning in Luke chapter 1, and we're going to read the events that led up to the birth of Jesus. And so, listen with me to what Luke says here. This is chapter 1, verses 26 through 33. The words are up here on the screen. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and just as a reminder, Elizabeth was related to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, we believe they were cousins or related in some way like that. Um, at this time, Elizabeth would have been pregnant with who? Do you remember? John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. He was the guy who got everybody ready for Jesus. He was out in the desert preaching to them, uh, baptizing them. So Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. She's six months pregnant. And the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel, to Nazareth, a village in Galilee to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Uh, this is not a passage that we are used to reading the first Sunday of Lent, is it? This is a passage that we're used to reading when? Christmas time, because of what this passage describes, the events leading up to the birth of Jesus. And even though this passage that I just read is familiar to a lot of us, I'm assuming that a good number of us have heard sermons on this passage before. There is a singular detail in this story that we often overlook. In fact, for the longest time, I overlooked this detail. I had read this passage hundreds of times. I overlooked this detail until somebody pointed it out to me. And that detail has to do with where God sends Gabriel to find the mother of Jesus. So listen with me again to what it says here in verse 26. In the sixth month, of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to where? Nazareth. Nazareth, a village in Galilee. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. Nazareth. 
Now, most of us, because of Jesus, uh, we've heard of Nazareth before. Jesus of Nazareth, right? And yet the funny thing is, 2,000 years ago, hardly anybody knew anything about Nazareth. Nazareth was considered to be, back then, a podunk. You ever heard the term podunk before? A podunk, do-nothing town. You ever been to a town like that? Is anybody here from a town like that? Right? Some hands are going up. I'm not going to give examples lest I offend somebody who might be here in the room or worshiping online. Uh, but I'm talking about a town where there's uh, not many restaurants, not many stoplights, no cell phone service. Nazareth was that kind of community. In fact, scholars estimate at the time of Jesus, Nazareth had a population of 100 to 400 people. That's it. 100 to 400 people. In fact, Nazareth was so tiny and insignificant that it's not even mentioned in most historical sources. For example, the Jewish Talmud lists 63 villages in Galilee. Not Nazareth. Josephus, who was a famous first century Jewish historian, he identifies 45 villages in Galilee. Not Nazareth. Nazareth was virtually non-existent. Chances are, even if you live close by, you didn't know about it back then. Nazareth was totally dwarfed by this larger metropolitan city that was located just four or five miles away called Sepphoris. Uh, we have a map of Sepphoris up here on the screen. Uh, this is Sepphoris. It's uh, just to the north of Nazareth, again, about four or five miles away. Uh, now, contrast Sepphoris with Nazareth. Nazareth had a population, I said, of 100 to 400 people. Sepphoris had a population of 30 thousand people. That would be big today. That was incredibly big, astronomically big 2,000 years ago to have a city with that number of people. Um, Sepphoris was considered to be the Manhattan of Galilee. It was where the rich and the affluent lived. It was the center of culture and influence. If you were somebody, you lived in Sepphoris. In fact, uh, and this is really interesting, archaeologists have done excavations of Sepphoris and this is what they found, and we have this up here on the screen, that the people of Sepphoris lived in these um, luxurious villas, uh, incredible villas uh, with these mosaic floors. And what's amazing is these mosaic floors are still intact 2,000 years later. Archaeologists have found nothing like this in Nazareth. The people in Nazareth, for the most part, were laborers and farmers, and they lived in caves not villas, but caves, as an inexpensive form of housing. This is a cave that some family in Nazareth would have probably lived in about 2,000 years ago. Uh, do you know what these caves are made out of? Limestone. We know about limestone in Florida, don't we? Limestone is easy to break apart. So imagine your family living in this cave and you need an additional bedroom. You just begin to chip away. And there you go. You've got your bedroom. Mary's family, in all likelihood, lived in a cave. In fact, some people assume that Gabriel came to a cave, to the cave where Mary's family lived, when he visited with her and told her this good news. Uh, Nazareth really had nothing going on, and people were embarrassed by it. Do you remember in John's Gospel, when Philip sees Jesus coming, Philip runs to his friend Nathaniel, and he says to Nathaniel, well, we have found the Messiah, the one who Moses wrote about. And the prophets wrote about Jesus, the son of Joseph of Nazareth. Do you remember how Nathaniel responds? This is John chapter 1, verse 46. Let's read this together. 
Nazareth, exclaimed Nathanael. Can anything good come from Nazareth? This was not a compliment by any stretch of the imagination. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Even the people who knew about Nazareth were ashamed of it. Yet, folks, this is the place where the God of the universe chose to go to carry out his plan of salvation for the entire human race. God didn't go to Sepphoris. God went to Nazareth. And he didn't just go to Nazareth. In particular, he went to a young woman in Nazareth by the name of Mary. I mean, the fact that God sends Gabriel to a woman in the first place should stand out to us as the reader. Because unfortunately back then, women were not seen with the same equality as men. They had no voice. They had no power. They had no influence. They had no social standing. It shouldn't have been that way, but that's the way it was. Actually, a woman's testimony 2,000 years ago was inadmissible in public court. So in other words, if you were a woman and you had seen something, you couldn't testify about it in court. Your testimony would have not been included. It would have been tossed out. But think about this. The testimony of the good news of Jesus, the greatest news that this universe has ever known, comes first to a woman. Don't let anybody ever tell you that women can't be preachers. That is not true. The testimony of the good news of Jesus, the greatest news that this universe has ever known, comes first to a woman. And not just to any woman, but to a teenage girl. Maybe 13 or 14 years old. Which really sounds weird to us as modern readers of this passage. But we have to remember that in that culture, the average life expectancy was anywhere from 30 to 35 years old. 30 to 35 years old was the average life expectancy. And so at 13, 14, you were almost middle-aged. You were considered to be an adult. Mary might have been an adult by those standards, but let's be real, folks. She was still a child, wasn't she? She was still young and experienced. She was still a poor woman from a small village that hardly anybody knew about. And yet God chose Mary to carry out his plan of salvation for all human beings. You see, what Luke is telling us in the opening pages of his gospel is that God has this incredible, remarkable way of using the lowly people of this world to fulfill his purposes. Remember, this is the same God who 1,300 years before Jesus chose the Hebrews, a slave people, to be his own possession, to be his own chosen people. This is the same God who, when the Hebrews were enslaved in Egypt, he sent Moses, somebody who would stutter. He had no skills in public speaking, no skills in communication, and he had Moses speak to the most powerful man in the world, to Pharaoh, and demand that Pharaoh let God's people go. This is the same God who sent the prophet Samuel to the house of Jesse and chose the youngest son, whom everyone else had forgotten about. In fact, Jesse, the father, didn't even think to include him among his sons and made him King David. This is the same God who used David when David was just a shepherd boy to take down the Philistine warrior Goliath. This same God chose Mary of Nazareth. What I want us to recognize is this, that God likes to use the nothings of this world, those whom nobody else takes seriously, 
to get things done. God likes to use the nothings of the world, those whom nobody else takes seriously, to get things done. I've seen this before. Uh, when I had finished my first year of seminary, uh, I uh, did an internship at a United Methodist congregation in Indianapolis, Indiana. And this congregation uh, was part of a partnership with other congregations in the city of Indianapolis. And this partnership supported school children in Kenya. Uh, now, most of these kids, um, they were considered to be at risk, vulnerable, uh, because their parents had died of HIV or AIDS. And so this partnership ensured that these kids were still protected and looked after, and that they were given access to an education so that they could have a shot at life. So during the summer, when I was in Indianapolis, uh, to learn more about this partnership, uh, we went to this Presbyterian church there in Indianapolis. And this Presbyterian church, like the Methodist church where I was, it was also a part of this partnership. And so during this meeting at this Presbyterian church, I discovered that when the youth group of this congregation, these students, middle schoolers, high schoolers, when they heard about what was being done in Kenya, all this wonderful work, they wanted to be a part of it. And so these kids put their heads together, and they said, well, what can we do? And then one of the students came up with an idea. He said, we're going to put together a carnival, and we're going to invite the entire city of Indianapolis to come to this carnival, and all the money that we raise will go to support these school children in Kenya. So they had this idea. They went to their youth pastor. The youth pastor didn't take them seriously. So they went to their parents. Unfortunately, their parents didn't take them seriously. In their minds, these adults pictured this rinky-dink backyard carnival. It would cost way more money than it raised. They didn't think that these kids could pull this off. But undeterred, the kids went ahead, and they put on this carnival. They did all the organizational work. They called all the vendors and everybody like that. And to make a long story short, this carnival, far from being rinky-dink, some backyard thing, it ended up being this huge shindig. Um, when it was all said and done, these students, most of whom weren't old enough to drive, ended up raising about $16,000. $16,000. You see, folks, those whom nobody else takes seriously, God uses in the biggest of ways. The events leading up to the birth of Jesus show us God's concern for the excluded but not just the events leading up to the birth of Jesus, but even the birth itself shows us God's concern for the excluded. And so let's fast forward. Nine months. So after Gabriel's visit to Mary, maybe in a cave, uh, nine months later, Mary and Joseph are where? They're not in Nazareth. They're in Bethlehem. Mary has just given birth to Jesus. She's taken her baby, wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger, do you remember who was there with Mary and Joseph that first Christmas night to welcome Jesus into the world? Yeah, it wasn't the Magi. The Magi came probably months later. It was the shepherds. And so listen with me to what Luke goes on to say in chapter 2 of his gospel, verses 8 through 18. Again, this is a passage that we're used to reading around Christmas time. Luke says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, 
And they were terrified. There's something about being in the presence of an angel that just terrifies you. Mary was terrified. The shepherds were terrified. But the angel said to them, the same message the angel gave to Mary, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, that would be Bethlehem, the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened, and what the angel had said to them about this child, all who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. It's amazing. Of all the people that the God of the universe could have sent to welcome Jesus into this world, God sent shepherds. Many of you already know this to be true, but shepherds weren't exactly high on the totem pole 2,000 years ago. They were on the bottom rung of the social ladder, maybe one step up above a tax collector. Shepherds were poor, uneducated. The vast majority were probably illiterate. They hung around sheep all day, which meant that they smelled. In fact, I'm convinced that Mary and Joseph smelled the shepherds coming before they ever saw them coming. I could just picture Joseph say to Mary, Oh, what's that smell? Mary says, oh, this is shepherds. They're on their way. The only property that shepherds owned was their sheep. And since many of them could not afford their own land, Israel is a small country. There's not a whole lot of land to go around. Since many of them could afford their own land, they would let their sheep graze in their neighbor's land. That would be like if I took my two dogs and I had my dogs every day do their business in your yard and I didn't clean up after my dogs. Would you like that very much? You'd probably get irritated with me. Maybe you would turn on the sprinkler every time I you know, came by your house. People got irritated with shepherds. They saw them as suspicious, untrustworthy. They didn't want to be around them. I mentioned that a woman's testimony was not admissible in public court. In many cases, a shepherd's testimony was not admissible either. And get this, it wasn't just shepherds who were present at the birth of Jesus, but shepherds working the night shift or the graveyard shift. You ever worked the night shift before? Is the night shift usually the first one that is picked by employees? Usually it's the last shift. In other words, these guys were the bottom of the bottom of the bottom, and yet they were there along with Mary and Joseph to welcome Jesus? And they weren't just there to welcome Jesus. They were also the first people to tell others about Jesus. Listen again to what Luke says here in verses 17 and 18. After seeing him, that would be Jesus, after seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened. They couldn't keep this news to themselves. And what the angel had said to them about this child, all who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. Folks, as best I can tell, the shepherds were the first evangelists of the New Testament. What's an evangelist? Well, that English word evangelism comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means good news. It's where we get the word gospel, euangelion, good news. 
Um, so an evangelist is somebody who tells others the good news of Jesus. The shepherds were the first people to announce that God had come into the world in Jesus Christ. It's unreal. The people whom God chooses to use to tell others about his love. This continues even out today. Uh, back in 1976, in the year that he was elected president, do you remember who would have been elected president in 1976? Jimmy Carter, very good kitty. Uh, in the year that he was elected president, Jimmy Carter was one of three people invited to speak to the 17,000 delegates at the Southern Baptist Convention that year. Uh, as you may recall, Jimmy Carter is a Baptist himself. And so these three speakers were given a five-minute time slot. The first speaker was Billy Graham. You've heard of Billy Graham before, the, the world-famous evangelist. The last speaker was soon-to-be president Jimmy Carter. And then the speaker in between Billy Graham and Jimmy Carter was a truck driver. So here's Billy Graham. He's behind the podium. He's giving his very fiery, passionate speech. Meanwhile, there are two chairs over here for uh, the truck driver and Jimmy Carter. And the truck driver whispers to Jimmy Carter, he says, I'm terrified right now. I'm about to pass out. Here I am about to speak in front of 17,000 people. I've never given a speech before in my life. And then finally, Billy Graham finished. And the truck driver rose and he stood at the podium. Imagine having to follow Billy Graham of all people. Having never given a speech before. So he stands there just silently. And then finally a minute or so goes by and he mumbles into the microphone. He says, I was always a drunk and I didn't have any friends. The only people I knew were people like me who hung out in bars all day. And then he went on to tell a story. He said that somebody in his life had told him about Jesus. And he decided to give his life over to God, open himself up to the transformative power of Jesus Christ. And he said, after I received Jesus into my life, I was so excited and passionate, I just had to tell other people about this. I didn't know where to start, but I figured, hey, a lot of the people I know go to bars. Maybe that's a good place to begin. So I went to the bar in the town where I lived. I told people about Jesus. The bartender didn't like it. He accused me of being a nuisance and bad for business. He told me I was bothering everybody. But I could tell that there were some people there and they were interested. I mean, sure, at first they made fun of me, but I kept at it. And after a while, they started asking me questions. And I could tell that they were being sincere and genuine with their questions. And if I didn't have the answer, I would go and get the answer and I would bring it back to them. Within time, he said, 14 people at that bar gave their life to Jesus Christ. 14 people at that bar gave their life to Jesus Christ. With that, the 17,000 delegates all rose to their feet and they began to applaud. Reflecting on that experience, this is what Jimmy Carter writes. He says, the truck driver's speech was the highlight of the convention. I don't believe anyone who was there will ever forget that five-minute fumbling statement nor will they remember what I, or even Billy Graham, had to say. By the world standards, Billy Graham and Jimmy Carter, those were the somebodies. Those were the people that everybody looked up to and admired. 
They had achieved great things. But who did God use to lead 14 people at a bar to Jesus? Who did God use to inspire the 17,000 delegates of the Southern Baptist Convention that year, even more than Billy Graham or Jimmy Carter had inspired them? God used that truck driver. Folks, this is the God we have. This is the God who has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ, a God who is committed to using the nobodies and the nothings of this world. So have you ever felt like a nobody? Have you felt like a nothing? God wants to use you in some big ways. So give yourself to God. Entrust yourself to God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Watch what God can do. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said amen. Amen. amen.